0: your Bibles, uh, I'd love for you to turn to Esther chapter 1 and we are going to be looking at verses 8 to 22 today in the story. And uh, just as you're going there, uh, I have, I I won't get you to share, uh, but I'd like a raise of hands. Um, How many of you at some point in your life have been in a situation where you've got your ego bruised? Hands up, way high. All right, All, a lot of us, okay. Well, I'm not gonna get you to tell me, but I'll, I'll just share that when I've gotten my ego bruised, I tend to be a spiteful person, okay? My natural tendency to, is to be spiteful, to prove them wrong. And I remember that one silly time this happened. It was about 10 years ago, 2008, so maybe longer than that, but I was working for the county here in the town and uh, my job was to get in the, get in the yard and uh, the very first thing I do was load up uh, the, the skid steer on the back of the trailer and tie it down and all that kind of jazz. And this one particular day I, uh, I kind of came in and I had, I had been practicing uh, being able to back it onto the trailer without anybody guiding me on it. Okay? And this one day, my boss comes and he says, okay, this is what I need you to do today. Oh, Dan, please make sure that you have someone guiding you back uh, onto the trailer. And the pride kind of came up. And I said, I don't need anybody to show me how to back a skid steer onto a trailer. I can do it myself. Long story short, I was able to get all four wheels, the arm and the bucket suspended in midair and it was pretty embarrassing and my pride, and I did it and it, my pride hurt there I, I did it completely out of pride, They didn't know it at that moment, but the whole reason why I decided not to have someone guide me on was because I wanted to show them up that I could do it, that I could handle it, I mean, pride is a very sneaky thing, isn't it? Amen to that? Amen. And we can all struggle. At the time, I wouldn't have said that I was prideful. And I, but the reality is, the whole reason that I did it was uh, because I had an excessively high view of myself. I thought myself better than I did. And the, the thing about pride is it's very, very tricky. We all strive to have humility as a trait, but it's, it can be a very insidious kind of thing. My question to you today is, how do you know that you've got a good handle on your pride? How do you know that you're a humble person? And uh, the question that I, and I know that all of us would probably say, well, you know, I don't think I'm a very prideful person. I know that I struggle with it, but my question is, how do you know that you've got a lid on it? How do you know that you've got a handle on it? How do you know that it's not an issue for you today? And our story today is exactly about someone whose ego got bruised pretty badly, actually. And so I'm hoping to give you this morning a litmus test, if you will, to check the kind of uh, way that you, if you are a humble person or you're struggling with pride at some point in your life and you're not even aware of it, you'll notice that as we're going through the book of Esther, pride is a recurring theme. It happens in our story today. It happens with Haman, and pride that goes unchecked at least in this story, can result in the genocide of an entire people, if you know the story well enough. All right. So, let me, let me, uh, let me uh, tell you the story and then I'll make a couple observations and then we could go home and have brunch. So, the first thing I want to let you know about the story is, is we kind of uh, pick up where we left off last week. In the first eight verses, we were told about King Hazazarus or King Xerxes. And he threw a big party, and the whole reason that he threw a big party was to show how great he was, how awesome he was, that he's kind of a big deal. So he's throwing this party primarily to feed his own ego. And in verse 8, we pick up the story, and it says this. It says that he was, everyone was drinking way too much. Verse 8, and drinking was according to this edict. There was no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So we have laws about drinking. He had a law about drinking. His law is the opposite of our law. His law is drink as much as you want. And that's important for the story because it sets up a really, really, really bad decision. And someone pointed this out last week is, This is a bunch of political leaders, military leaders, so they're all guys, and there's no women here. Where are the women? Well, the next verse tells us that they are there in the story. So verse nine, I believe, says this. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Okay, So where are the women? They're off in a special section of the palace and they're having their own party. Very Mennonite brethren, eh? Like, very guys on this side, girls on this side, just like coffee. And so, what winds up happening is everyone's drunk. Queen Vashti's having his own, her own party for, for the women. And then, this is where the plot takes a turn for the worse. The king made a foolish decision while intoxicated. It says this in verse 10. On the seventh day, so the very last day of the feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Vista, Abona, Vegatha, Abatha, Zethra, and Carcus, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Azazares, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the prince's her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So just a tip about Bible names. I've noticed that if you say them fast and pretend like you know what they're saying, it comes across like you know. So just a just a tip. But let me break down what's happening here, okay? So the very thing that verse ten tells us is that the king was merry with wine. And I know that as Christians, like there's all these debate about can Christians drink and Christians not drink. What's the biblical standard of drink? Here's what I know, for sure, for sure, for sure, that the Bible says about alcohol. And here are the three things that uh, I think uh, it the the form the Christian the Bible's opinion on alcohol. First is that we are to be subject to the rules, the laws of the land. Secondly. We are not to drink in a way that causes other people to stumble. And thirdly, we are not to get drunk. And so here's what I would say that a good, the Bible says, not Pastor Dan, but the Bible says is that any drinking that involves breaking the law, causing others to sin, or leads to intoxication is not to be practiced among believers. And the reason that I bring that up is not because that... um, God is trying to be a killjoy. It's because that we have no filter on the decisions that we make when we're intoxicated. Okay? There's no moral compass. When you drink, you don't become less intelligent. You lose your inhibitions. Which is why drinking and driving is a bad idea. Okay? And you tend to make decisions. Your conscience is dulled, and I would even argue that you suppress the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life when you are intoxicated. There are no, there's no good filter. You lose the ability to make good decisions. And so what I would argue here, and why I bring this up, is because that's exactly what happens in this story. He's intoxicated, and then he makes a bad decision. And he gets seven eunuchs to go and tell the queen something. Now, I need need to point this out. What are eunuchs? Eunuchs are men who are castrated. I I need to spend just two minutes describing this because in chapter two, we learn that when Esther enters into the story, she is brought into a harem. So what we know about King Xerxes' harem is this, is that he would go among his entire nation and he would see beautiful women and he would say this, I want one. And he would take the woman back to his palace, and they would live in a special section of the palace devoted to devoted to just the women. And he would have, he would have his way with her, and then they would be done. And sometimes you would be there among among uh, hundreds, maybe even thousands of women, and you would never either see a, another guy again. And to ensure, and the reason that King Xerxes did this was, was to show his greatness, to say, look what I have and you don't. And to ensure that the women who didn't fall in love or have children with anyone else, the only men that could be around, all these beautiful women, were those who were castrated. And the reason I want to point this out is because everything is about his pride in this instance. Right? Look what I have and look what you don't. And when that happens, both the men and the women are oppressed. Have you seen this the story? And that's a big part of the story going forward. So he's drunk, and he asks the, the he asks the units to go and bring Queen Vashti to the royal town in order that the people would see her beauty and that she was a lovely look like. So let me just break this down for you. The setting is is that they have been drinking for six months, off and on. He throws one last party. For everyone, and they're all drunk, and at the end of it, he says, "I want everyone to see how beautiful my wife is, so everyone can be covetous of how great she is, and kind of parade her around like a trophy. Look what I have, and you don't." Okay. Now, how many of you ladies that actually sounds like a good idea? Hands up. Ah, it's not, isn't it? And so what winds up happening is. Vashi is put into a decision. She has to decide whether or not she's going to follow the king's orders or not to follow the king's orders. And this is kind of double later because what you notice is that she either obeys or disobeys on two levels. She obeys the king or she disobeys the king when she obeys her husband or disobeys her husband. What is she going to do? She's put in a dangerous situation, and she's got to make a decision. And on one hand, if she follows the king's orders, she places herself in harm's way. On the other hand, she could lose her life. I don't know if you know this, but later in the story, we learn that if you disobey the king, it's it's, it's over. It's done. So what is she going to do? Well, verse 12 tells us, she says no. And it says in verse twelve, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Now you stop here and say that that is unusual, especially in that day, even though that she's queen. For her refusal for her husband's edict, who has the power of life and death over her, is very very real. And she says to her husband, "There's not a chance. I'm not there to be leered at by all your male friends." You will have to have your banquet without me. That's what she says. Now, the debate is this. Did Vashti do a good thing or a bad thing? You remember what I told you about Esther, that it's one of the most controversial books in the Bible. And the reason for that is that it just tells the story. Okay. It tells you, this is basically what happens. King Xerxes was intoxicated, he asked his wife to come, she said no, that's the story. It doesn't really tell you what God thinks about it. it, doesn't really tell you whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, and because of that, there are multiple trans interpretations of what she has done, and Vashti is a really good example of the controversy that Christians have been arguing about since this book, since Christianity first started, because you have a split and, all, and uh, split right down the middle in commentators. And I'm talking commentators today, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, that are evenly split on one issue. Did she do a good thing or a bad thing? One of them, half of them would say that she did a bad thing. She uh, she She should have obeyed her husband. She humiliated her husband. Even Luther, the man responsible for the Reformation, Used Vashti as an example of what not to do. So there's that side of it. Then there are other Christians that say that she did a noble thing. If your husband asks you to do evil, you're just joining him in as evil. So you're enabling or encouraging his sin. Then you see right now that there's a controversy. How do you interpret it? Esther doesn't tell you. And in fact, if you look at the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible doesn't mention Esther at all. So there's no really way to tell. There's no New Testament commentator on her. There's no Old Testament. It's just the facts. This is what happened. He was drunk. He asked for her. She said no. So what do you think the king's reaction at this point was? Right? Anyone want to take a guess? He actually became very wrathful. It says this in the latter half of verse 12. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So here's the deal. He throws a party to show how awesome he is. During the party, he demands his wife be shown off like some sort of trophy. Look what I have and you don't. as the way to feed his pride. She says no and humiliates him in front of everybody, and he gets angry. And so, what I want to say in this is I want to make just two quick observations. Well, number one, anger is a primarily emotion that you feel when one of two things happens, or both. Number one, anger is an emotion you feel when st- someone actually stops you from getting your way. Okay? You notice that? You tend to get angry when you want something done and it's not done your way. And it's also a covering motion for fear, and we see both these in Xerxes. He, he didn't get his way, she said no, and he was humiliated in front of all his friends. And so now he has a decision to make. And this is very, very interesting. He's got a decision about how he's going to respond to his wife's refusal. And really, he's really pitted between two choices. He's pitted; He can say, I'm going to lose my pride or I'm going to lose my wife. Which one do you think he chooses? He loses his wife. And he keeps his pride. And he does three things. I want you to notice this. He punishes her in three ways. He built a case against her. So he got a bunch of his friends. Here's what the text says. I'll, I'll, I'll read it and then I'll comment on it. Verse 13. The king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in the law and judgment. The, ne- men, the men next to him, being a, a bunch of uh, wise men, uh, were the, said, said this. Uh, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face sat in the kingdom. According to the law, he, he asked, what is to be done about Queen Vashti? Notice something here he actually doesn't talk to his wife he actually goes to other people because she has not performed the, the command of King Hisazarus delivered by the eunuchs and the, then and said in the presence of the king and the officials not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong but also against all the officials and all the people who are in the provinces of, of King Hisazarus for the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husband with contempt. Since they will say, King Hazazarus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard about the queen's behavior will say the same thing to the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. Alright, so here's the deal. It is what winds up happening is that instead of going to his wife, he gets a bunch of people together and he defends his actions. He makes a case, he builds a case and says, I was in the right, she was in the wrong, what are we going to do about it? And basically the officials say, hey, you've got to get your wife in line because everyone else is going to see what she did and they're going to follow our example and we don't want to have to deal with what you did in our marriages. So he builds a case he justifies himself. Okay? Then he makes a law it goes on to say in verse 9 that or, uh, verse 19 that he gives her the silent treatment. He basically decides you were right, I was right you were wrong. I'm gonna get a bunch of people around me who agree with me and tell me that they're right and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end the relationship And it says in verse 19, if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out for him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never to come before the king is Azarus. And let the king give her royal position to another that is better than she. So he builds a case, he gives her the silent treatment. And look what he does next. He mistreats all those who reminded him of particularly the wives of Persia. Verse 20. So the decree made made by king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom. For it is vast that all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Now I want you to be careful of that. It's not the honor that you and I think of in Ephesians. It's a sit down, be quiet, and shut up. Don't talk. Ever. Yeah. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as, as they proposed. He sent the letters to all the royal provinces, so that's that's the postal system I told you about, to every province in its own script and to every people in his own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Well, that's the story. And that actually sets up an opportunity for Esther to come in. Okay. A couple observations I want to make about this, and then I'll let you go. First is, is I want you to see that God uses a foolish decision to save his people from genocide. Do you remember what I told you about Esther last week? That in Esther, God is silent throughout the whole story. He's not there. He's not present. He's not talking. There's no prophet. There's no pillar of fire. There's no Moses, there's there's no voice from heaven, there's no angel, there's nothing. And considering the severity of what is about to happen, which is that there is no, the the people of Israel are about to be wiped off the face of the planet, you kind of think you would want God to show up. And what I want you to see is that even though that God seems absent in the story, he is not open. he's not absent. This is an open door for him to use a foolish decision to bring Esther into the story so that God can use Esther to save her people. Even though God's not mentioned, he's still moving. And what I want you to see is throughout the theme of the whole series, even when God is silent, even when he's not speaking to you, even when you're praying and you're crying out to him, you're looking for a word or something to encourage you in your crisis. He's still working to protect you. That's why we've named the series My Guardian. Because he's guarding you even in his silence. Secondly, I want you to, do I don't want to park on this one for a bit. King Azazarus hurt Vashti because Vashti hurt his pride. You might be thinking what I think about Vashti. This is my opinion, and you can argue with me on this. I think what Dashti did was a brave, courageous, and moral decision. She stood up to a guy who had never been said no before. <clears throat> and you have to understand that the context of the story is that he had a very high and excessive opinion of himself. Who else throws a six-month party just to say I'm the best guy in the entire world He actually thought that he was like a god. No one called him on his pride, ever. And here's what I want to say about this. This It's a very interesting thing. A a life of unchecked pride leads to a loss of reason. And it demands that people worship an, an excessive view of ourselves that is not true. And we will be willing, and in this case, we are willing to protect our image, often at the expense of someone else, and that is what he did. In order to show how great he is, he put his wife in danger. And he prays a vasty around like a trophy. And I just wanna say that because he's in charge, it doesn't mean that he's right. Any authority, any school, any government, a parent or spouse that asks you to do evil the answer is simply no we must obey God rather than man. but the answer is no when he gets resentful and the problem with resentful, resentfulness is that it leaves you with a false sense of power and a sick sense of well-being it allows me to say that I am better than you and it drives me to be angry at anyone who suggests I need to look at my own life and take responsibility for it. So let me just set this up so it's really easy. He did what king, Is the king's command a good decision or a bad decision? Yes or no? It's not. So he was in the wrong. And instead of, me getting, instead of being uh, humble and admitting his, he was wrong, he gets resentful, he gets angry, and he blames everyone else but himself. And here's what I want you to see about this. Everything that King Isazarus did was to flaunt his greatness. Even his motivation for parading around his wife was to boast about his glory. Look what I have and you don't. And his anger is rooted in his inability to self-promote or to stroke his own ego, to feed his pride. His following decision to divorce his wife and make a nationwide degree were born out of a fear that people would not see his greatness but see him as he really was. Now here's the part that I think speaks to us tonight today is that all of us, at times in our life, are prone to the same folly as Xerxes. Is that true? And when someone hurts our pride in a similar manner or corrects us in a similar manner to what happened in this story, we are too faced with the decision. Am I going to lose my pride or am I going to lose my people? Same decision as he is. Am I going to lose my pride or am I going to lose Vashti? Am I going to lose my pride, or am I going to lose my relationships? Sometimes, friends, you can win the argument and keep the relationship. But sometimes you are put in a space where you have to decide whether you're going to win, and keep your pride, at the expense of your relationship, or you're going to keep your relationship and lose your pride. And we're all prone to the same folly as Zazarus. What do we mean by that exactly? Simply this, is that we can hurt people who hurt our egos. And just like Xerxes, we can, in anger, wrathfully retaliate against those who take us down a peg. You and I are more inclined to respond like Xerxes than King Jesus when our pride is uh, shown. When people don't allow us to feed our pride, we get resentful, and then we get angry, and we, and we're angry because we're humiliated, and we're and because we are afraid that people will see us as who we truly are, and not who we wish them to see us to be. That is his story, and that is our story too. Do you remember earlier I asked you exactly how Xerxes, uh or if you struggle with pride, I just want, it's really, the story I think really just forces us to ask a simple question. And that is, have I ever hurt someone who hurt my own ego? When someone actually confronts you, and you have an overly excessive view of yourself, like maybe you think you're better at your job, and your boss comes and says, no, you're not. Or you think you're a good husband or you're a good wife, and someone actually confronts you and says, no, you're not, do you retaliate like he did? All of us are prone to that folly without even realizing it. And I want to just maybe let me ask this question in a different way. Have you ever punished someone who corrected you by building your case, justifying your actions, giving the silent treatment like Xerxes did, or mistreating people that reminded you of them, like Xerxes did all the wise of Persia. Have you ever been in a spot where you justified your case? You know what I mean by that, haven't you? Is someone confronts you, someone someone, someone says, hey, you know, this isn't the right view of you, or something, someone along the line, someone takes you down a peg, and instead of saying that you were right and I was wrong, what you do is you gather another friend or maybe a family member, someone who is like you, and you <clears throat> and you get them. They all agree with you. You defend your case before them, and you kind of say, <clears throat> you kind of you CC them in the email. You get together with coffee and you said, "This is what happens," and they're all like, "You're right, they're wrong." Okay. You know, friends, I've been a pastor for a number of years now, and occasionally I have to sit down with someone and say, hey, I'm worried about you, and I have to confront them on something. It's not a very fun part of my job. I don't like doing it because I want people to like me. And every single solitary time that I've done it, not one person has said to me yet, let me think about that and get back to you. Every single solitary time that I've had to have a hard conversation with someone, they've defended their own actions. Have you done that? It's so easy. I've done it. I've done it in my own marriage. I've done it in, in different places. It's just natural to do it. We are prone to that same folly. Have you ever given someone the silent treatment because they bruised your own ego? It's amazing to me how many times in church I will see people get along, people spend time with other people, and then something happens and there's some sort of fallout and they kind of like forgive each other, but then all of a sudden they're too busy for each other and they don't see each other, it happens all the time. Or do you punish those that remind you of the people that hurt you, that might one be a little bit hard. I just imagine for a moment that you're single, and that you're dating, and that you go through a bad breakup. And let's say let's let's give you some some credit here and say that it was their fault that you were that you were Jesus in the relationship. You're not, but let's say you were. Okay, you did everything right, and then you go around and you kind of say all men are evil or all women are evil doing? You're punishing people who remind you of the person who took down your pride. Just like Xerxes makes a law that hurts all the, all the wives of the land. Let me ask you a question. You know, let, me, uh, let me backtrack. Do you know what the result of all that is? Is that you're left alone. Look at what chapter two, verse one says. So he has made the law, he's got his people together and to to justify his position, I'm right, Vashti's wrong. He's kinda kicked her to the curb, he's saying, I'm not wanna be with you anymore, which is kinda funny because that's exactly what she wanted, right? And thirdly, he goes and makes a law that, you know, uh, out of his own trouble with his own marriage affects every marriage in the country. And it says this, is that after these things, when the anger of King Hazazarus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed against her. He gets lonely. Here's what I'm going to say. The downside to punishing people who hurt our pride is that we tend to wind up very alone, don't we? People don't usually like to be around someone who is always blaming someone else for the, uh, someone's unhappiness. And sometimes what winds up happening is we, put, we are put in a situation where someone hurts our pride, we defend our at, actions, and we lose the relationship. We can keep the friendship or lose the argument and lose the argument, but, but we can't do both. Sometimes you, <clears throat> you've done that. And have you ever been frustrated? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been frustrated that when people have an issue with you, they don't come and talk to you directly? How many of you, no, no, don't answer that. Let, let me do How many of you have been in a situation where someone has something against you, and they kind of talk around you, but not directly to you? Have you ever considered the reason? Now, they shouldn't do that, but let me let me just say, have you ever considered the reason that they might not be saying that, they might not be talking to you, is because they already know what the answer is going to be. But they're already going to say, you're already going to say you're wrong. And as a result, they keep their distance from you, and you're left alone. Could the read, <clears throat> and of course, when we go and talk about the story, there is an easier way. For him to handle this, isn't there? You think about the work he's got to get the people together. He's got to he's got to make a rationale for his decisions. He loses the relationship, the people are hurt. Think about the time and the energy and the tax dollars associated with the decision. There is an easier way he could have handled this. What was it? Any takers? Yes, Tobias. He could have talk to his wife. Isn't that true? He could have just went to his wife, said, you know what, baby, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have never been drunk. I shouldn't have asked you to do that. I was in danger. He could have done that. He could have been humble, and he could have actually just solved it then and there, right? Right? He could have. Might have taken a little bit longer than apology. You know, she probably was really hurt, all that kind of thing. But don't you find it interesting that he takes a relational problem and, he made, and his answer to it is a political solution. He should have just said, I'm sorry. Okay. We all fall prone to the follies of Xerxes and we're all, when some people hurt our pride, we all have a choice to lose our pride or to lose our relationship. Thankfully, and here's the good news, is that we don't have to follow King Azazarus, don't we? We have another king. What's his name, church? Jesus. We follow a better king, and his name is Jesus. And if way is pride, and that pride leaves us alone. Jesus' way is humility and humbleness that actually draws people to, to himself. Listen to what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Though Jesus was God, he did not think equality with God is something to cling to, something different than Xerxes. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took on a humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He appeared in human form before people. And here's what I want you to say. You have two kings. You have King Xerxes, and you have King Jesus. And we have a chance, as Christians, we don't have to, we might be prone to the same issues that Xerxes did, but we don't have to. We can follow King Jesus. And You want to know what I notice about King Jesus? Is that Jesus is humble in spirit. There's no pride in Jesus. And I want you to notice something. Comes and he humbles himself and that humility draws people to himself. We're all here because Jesus decided to be humble. You all have a relationship with Jesus because of that humility. I've noticed something and I've you can you correct can me if you think differently on this but I tend to notice that people don't like prideful people right? And we kind of, pride actually pushes our people away from us. But I actually think that humility draws people to yourself. Have you ever noticed that, that a humble person, like, I I don't mean false humility, I mean like genuine humility, that's the kind of person that a lot of people are drawn to. Have you noticed that? So today, I'm going to ask the question, do you struggle with your own pride? And I think the the question that you need to ask yourself is simply this. Do you follow the way of a a Zazarus or do you follow the way of King Jesus? Jesus tells us that we do not have to give in to that folly. We do not have to be prideful. We don't need to hurt others who punish us. But we can be humble and come to King Jesus and follow him. Amen? Amen. Let's close with one more song.